<laughs> Hi, good morning. Good to see everybody here at our main campus. Welcome to you guys that are joining us online. So one quick announcement before we get started. Uh, these shirts, you'll see them on uh, some of our staff members, people that have maybe bought them already. But as you're walking in through the cafe, um, our creative team has come up with these t-shirts to go along with this series because we've been processing this series for uh, quite a few months and our creative team has come together and tried to get things to help us engage into not just coming to a Sunday morning message, but obviously uh, to figure out how we can continue that conversation on. So one of the ways is buy a t-shirt um, and that you can get one. So they'll be on sale for a while. If you don't get a chance to get one today, uh, they'll be at the Cafe of Hope during the week, and then we'll be selling them uh, on Sunday. So uh, with that, the other thing is it's not just selling t-shirts. Here's the other part of it. Every t-shirt that is sold, uh, we're giving $5 back to United in Love here in Huntington. Uh, so it's not only selling the t-shirts, but it's being missional uh, to be able to give that money back to continue to support uh, what's going on through their ministry. So having a t-shirt is cool. Giving back to the community is better. So do them both, right? It, we can do both things. Now, Let's talk about this series. Uh, obviously, thank you for your patience. I was a little long-winded uh, the first service. We delayed the second service by 10 minutes. Uh, but again, this is a message that I've been processing for a lot of months. Um, and it's honestly something that I've wrestled with for many years. Um, and here's the idea. Like, here's the tension that I had. The tension for me always was the same. So when I gave my life to Christ, I always say I was somewhat naive in this way, that I gave my life to Christ and I just ask people, so what are you supposed to do? So they would say, you know, you need to read your Bible. And so I went into the New Testament and I started to read the New Testament, went into, you know, uh, the Gospels and then started to read Acts. And I was fascinated by the stories, right? So you read about people getting saved, people getting healed, people risking their lives for Christ, the Holy Spirit showing up, thousands being added to their number daily. Like, this is the stuff that you read about all the time. And I would be doing this during the week, and then I would go to church on Sunday, and I'd be like, where's all of that here? <laughs> right? Like, how is it that this being history, like this isn't, like, like I wasn't reading a fictional book, like a historical book of historical things that happen when Jesus shows up on the scene, dies on a cross, lives in the lives of people, and, and they go out and do these things, but yet the people that I saw, and I could have been biased, but the people that I saw weren't living like that, right? It didn't, it didn't, seem like they were living like that. I would go on the mission field, right? So you go, you know, in different places around the world and I would go there and I would see people, right? Like that would sacrifice their life to preach the gospel. Like it wasn't just show up to church. It was they would make decisions to plant churches in areas knowing that if they were caught sharing the gospel with a Bible, that they were gonna be beaten by metal rods and that they were gonna be persecuted for the things that they did. And guess what happened? More people came. Isn't that funny? Like, so all over the world, all these things happen. And then I would come back to the church in America and I'm like, not only is there nobody on fire and no persecution, more people aren't coming, more people are leaving. Like, what's the disconnect? 
right? So what is the disconnect from what scripture says? What is the disconnect from, from what's happening to what should really be happening, right? Because I always, this is how people explained it to me then, because I would just keep asking. I'd be like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Can you help me under explain? And this is what they would tell me. You know what the difference is? Is that there are people who are Christians and then there are people who are on fire for Christ. The people on fire for Christ are the ones out there saying, doing, you know, doing all that stuff. But there's a difference and, you know, the people that are Christians are just hoping to get on fire, but they're just not on fire today. I'm gonna give you a newsflash. And I think you'll see this over the next eight weeks. There is no such thing as a Christian not on fire for Jesus Christ because if you are a Christian that says they are lukewarm, you will be spit out of the mouth of God, end up in eternity separated from him. There's not a distinction. There not is the, you know what I mean? This is the distinction we have. And I think it makes sense. This is what happens in America. People give their life to Christ and claim Jesus for fire insurance. And it's good fire insurance, right? Because that's what somebody told you. Somebody told you, give your life to Jesus and you have a choice and the choice is heaven or the choice is hell. Well, what idiot picks hell? I mean, be logically, what logical person says, I want hell? So we, in the name of Jesus, pick somewhere that we don't wanna go, not necessarily where we wanna go, but just not to go there. And we claim Christianity, but here's what you're gonna see in scripture. Those claims can't be put together. There is no Christian, you can have a Christian person that has kind of went off the rails for a while, but, but, but they're coming back. They're, they, they, haven't, they haven't decided to just have a name and not live for Christ, right? Christian people, by biblical standards, live differently, period. That's the way it is. And I think over the next eight weeks, what you're gonna see is, is that we can't keep claiming to say that we are Christian and choosing not to live differently. And, and honestly, so the next eight weeks are gonna get tough because we're gonna talk about some things that you probably don't wanna talk about, but we're gonna talk about we can't claim to be Christians and live sexually immoral. We can't claim to be Christians on fire for Christ and say we have a Christian marriage and don't, right? Like there's a, there's a way that it's set up. There's a way that God says, we should live differently in our relationships. We should live differently in, in uh, our, our, our uh, marriage. We should live differently when it comes to how we spend our money. How do we live in a world today that we struggle so much with greed when scripture clearly says those who are Christian people live differently when it comes to their money, period. Like, how do we keep saying, I'm a Christian, but I choose not to live differently? So, it's gonna be exciting over the next eight weeks to talk about all of these different things. But today is about a foundation, right? Today is about laying a foundation. Again, I have lots of opinions, but I think it's very clear we should lay a foundation of what Scripture says. Like, this is what Scripture says the foundation of being a Christian and living differently is, and use that foundation to continue to move forward when it comes to the certain aspects of which we have in our life today. So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans 12 too. We're gonna have a couple different Scriptures. Daniel 1's gonna be the main one, but Romans 12 too is the, the foundational Scripture for this whole 
um, uh, series that we're going to be doing, so we'll probably refer to it quite a bit. But Romans 12, 2, this is what it says. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So here's what he starts to separate. There's this idea, and it's not an idea, but it's a mandate. God, if you are a Christian people, Christian person, we are supposed to do the will of God. Is that fair to say? Right? Claim Christianity. If you claim Christianity, then it is to say that we are to do the will of God. But you know what's funny? How many people would say, I don't really know what the will of God is. I'm kind of confused. I don't know what he wants me to do. I don't know what, anybody? You can shake your head. It's just your neighbor that's got the problem, not you, right? It's like, yeah, they don't know the will like I know the will. But I hear this all the time from people. Like, I don't really know what God wants me to do. I really don't know what God's will. I really, I'm confused. I don't know. I don't understand. I wish you would just tell me. Here's the thing. Very clearly, you will not understand the will of God as long as you conform to the patterns of this world. You can't. You can't understand what it is that God wants you to do while having a foot in Christianity and a foot in the world. You just can't get it done. He says, you're not going to be able, it says the only time that you understand God's perfect will is when you no longer conform to the world and you renew your mind. But you start thinking differently. But the idea that something's gotta be able to change and something's gotta be able to to. to, to Think, for us to be able to think differently. So here's what he's saying. What does it mean to conform to the patterns of the world? It means to think of everything as if it is the way that the world does, right? It, as if that when you think about your money, what makes, you, what makes you in the way that you handle your money any different than anybody else? What makes you in the way that you do your marriage, in the way that you do relationships, in the way that you do anything in your life? What makes you different? Right? Like the idea is, is that if we are Christian people and that we're not doing marriage, money, sexuality, all of these things, if we're not doing them the way of the world, then we are doing them the way of God. Right? Like those, those two things go together. So he says, foundationally, if you want to know the will of God and you want to be able to do the will of God, you're going to have to transform how you think. Right? Now, what do we need to think differently about? And this is what Paul's talking about in Philippians uh, 3. So this is another scripture, and here's what I wanted you to see. So in Philippians 3, Paul goes to the Philippian church in Philippi and says, you know what? You need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need to, you know, you need to be saved, and you need to live differently. But you know what the struggle was then? The same struggle that it is today. People would give their life to Christ, and they wouldn't understand what it means to live differently. Right? So he, Paul, writes to the Philippian church, writes to him in Philippi and says, I wanna tell you what you need to do when it comes to living differently and I wanna give you a warning. Here's his warning. Philippians 3, starting in verse 15. It says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things and if on some point you think differently that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. 
Here's the key to the scripture. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have, uh, just as you have us as a model, right? So he's saying, okay, if you wanna figure out how to live differently, look at Paul. So if you want, I know people are like, well, this is extreme, like Paul gave up everything and you know, traveled all around and preached the gospel and he you know, didn't take on wor- worldly things, he did. So he's, what he's saying is, that is an example. Extreme or not, you know, this is an example of what it means to be able to live for Christ, right? So look at him and he would say, look at other people, but he gives a warning, right? And this is what I want you to see. He says, keep your eyes on those who live as we do, right, the people who live differently. For I have often told you before and will now tell you again with my tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ and their destiny is destruction. Now listen. Do you remember what I said earlier, like one of the most confusing scriptures I've ever read? Like I still at this day struggle with this idea when it says inside of scripture, wide is the road that leads to destruction and how many people are on the wide road? How many? Many, lots, lots of people. The road to destruction is the road to hell. And he's just flat out saying there's tons of people that are on it. Narrow is the road that leads to life and how many people are on it? Very few. I've always said, like, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, how could it be that if this road was marked hell, that people would be on it? And why do so many people miss it? Paul talks about it. Here's what he says. Many people, right? Many people are an enemy of the cross. Now, immediately, I think this is, I don't know if this is you, but this is where my mind goes. You know, the people that are out there persecuting Christian people, Like, they're the enemy of the cross, right? The the people that are out there that in these foreign countries that if they see you worshiping, they're gonna lop your head off. Those are the enemies of the cross. Or the people that are getting on social media every time you post something about Jesus and saying you're an awful person and you should stop shoving your truth out, enemies of the cross. That's not what he's talking about. You know what he says? This This is crazy. The enemies of the cross are the people that are driven by their stomachs and focused on earthly things. Here's the crazy thing. I don't think he's necessarily talking to everybody outside of the church. I think he's saying that for a lot of you inside of the church, you're focused on your stomachs and worldly things. And just so you know, you know where that path leads to? Where's the path lead to? Not a holding place, not a place to get better, not a place to get it right, not of any of that. He says, if you are or have your mind on earthly things, it's not that you are not an on fire Christian, it is that you are going to destruction. You see, sometimes I think we just gloss over that. Sometimes I just think that we think it's okay to be focused on the things of the world and focused on all of the earthly things and consume everything that we want. Paul's flat out saying, just so you get it, people who are focused on earthly things are enemies of the cross and are going to destruction. Not that you're just going to destruction, you're an enemy. And you know why? You know why he says you're an enemy? 
And this isn't to point fingers or to make you feel bad, but you know why you're an enemy? Because this, this is what people want to hear. Like, I want to hear that I can be focused on the things of the world and still have fire insurance. That's what you want to hear. That's why he says it's an enemy. The enemy has infiltrated your ranks and your church and your people and your family and somehow has convinced you that you can be a Christian, focus on the worldly things, do whatever you want, and still someday be okay. He says, no, that's the enemy. Right? Like, that's not where he wants us to go. And he says very clearly that we need to be able to think differently, right? That their God is their stomach, this is the rest of that verse, and their glory is in their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. That's, that's the way that he says they, they're going to destruction. Now, how do you change it? How do you not get focused on earthly things? How do you, because let's just admit, is it, is it easy not to get focused on earthly things? That's not easy. Dude, you wake up every single day, and everything that there is in front of you is earthly things and problems and things to solve and stuff to try to put back together and things to fix and everything that's in front of you, earthly things, easy to get focused on it. But here's what he says. It's not necessarily this idea that you can live in this earth and enjoy the things that God gave you. It's something that needs to change inside of your mind, right? Here's what needs to change. This is what he says, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be glorious, so that they will be a glorious body. You know what you need to do to be able to live different? You gotta make a decision. Here's the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life. Where's your home? Where's your home? Here? We're in heaven someday. Because if you think for some odd reason that you're not just passing through, because that's what scripture tells us. Scripture just says you're passing through. Scripture just says you have a moment here, goes away like that. Scripture just tells us that everything that we do with our earthly things are just tents to be tore down someday because we're going to a heavenly place that really has a home prepared for you, especially for you. Everything had here is just tense. Things that are gonna fall down, things that are gonna burn, things that people are gonna rob, things that people are gonna destroy, things that people are gonna take away, all of that stuff, you're just passing through anyway. So if it burns up, tears up, breaks up, who cares? I got a home that I'm going to someday. You see, and the way that we can get through that, so you, you think about this, like even how we face tragedy in our life. Because, you know, you get to a place where life sucks, anybody? You get to a place where you can't explain things. Anybody ever been there? Like, you ever get to a place where you can't explain things? I, I hear this every single week. You, certain things happen, and we're like, wait a second. This doesn't even make any sense. Like that, and this, and that, and that. Like, I, why would God, why does this happen? You know how you can get through by faith? Good thing this ain't my home. Good thing this isn't the only thing that's to come, because this sucks. 
Good thing that there's something else. Good thing there's something else to look forward. Good thing that my citizenship isn't here, but it's somewhere else because I can live different in the midst of tragedy. I can live different when it comes to the way that I spend my money. Even if he takes it all, like take it all. I got something stored up, a treasure that nobody can take away someday, right? But that's a fight. And the only way that you can battle through that is to think that there has to be something else, that our home is somewhere else. And for us as Christian people, that isn't a one-time decision. That is a daily decision to wake up. At least it is for me, and I think it probably should be for you. Wake up every day and be like, not only is this not my home, I'm glad it's not my home. I am thankful that this God-forsaken place that I get to leave someday. You know what I mean? I'm glad that I can be here, and I'm glad, and I'm gonna enjoy, and I'm gonna, you know, whatever God wants to bless with, whatever God wants to give or take, whatever that stuff is, but I will be thankful. I always said this, like, don't prolong my life. I'm ready to go home. You know, you don't have to keep, you don't have to keep me here, like, I, you know, we don't need, like, I'm ready to go because, again, I get it. I love and you want to be, and I, I understand all those stuff. But when it's not your home, you approach everything differently, right? You approach your life, your money, all of those stuff. So that's foundational, right? Romans 12, 2 and Philippians, he gives us that. Now, what I don't want to do is leave you with a, that's kind of a big, broad concept, Right? Live differently, live as this is not your home, live as if you are a citizen of heaven. But if you're like me, you're like, can, can you just give me, can you show me somebody? Anybody else like that? Can you give me an example? Can you give me somebody that's done it? And can you show me where they made the decisions so that I can learn from that person to make better decisions? Can you show me some of that stuff? So here's where we're going, Daniel 1. So in Daniel 1, we're gonna look at in this, a story of a man and actually a group of people that made decisions as if this wasn't their home, and we can see where God honored those decisions. So I'm going to give you a little history. So as you're turning to Daniel 1, if you have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen, but I'd love for you to be able to find it if you can. Here's the history of Daniel 1. So if you read all of Old Testament history, here's what you're going to see. The Jews, or Judah, were God's chosen people, right? God's chosen people. So he would tell them, if you live differently, this is what he always said, right? If you live differently than everybody else around you, guess what he's going to do? Bless them, protect them, take care of them, right? Like he said, I'm gonna set you apart. I'm gonna move you into a different place. We're gonna do all of these things. But guess what the nation of Israel did just like us? They made decisions to live differently, but not the way that God wanted them to. So they made decisions that would say, you know what, when it comes to money, God, we're running out of money, so we need to do this, and we don't trust you anymore. You told us to trust you, but we don't trust you anymore, so we're gonna make this decision. Or, you know, when he said, keep yourself pure and only marry inside of the Jewish culture because if you intermingle, and they're like, you know what, but that doesn't make political sense because you know what you need is allies, 
Like there's big armies out there. We need allies. You know why you get allies? Marry the king's daughter. That's how you get allies. See, they started thinking on their own. They started coming up with their own schemes and their own plans, and they started to come up with ways that they could go against what God told them when it comes to living differently. Well, guess what happens when you choose to live outside of the will of God? Read the Old Testament. (laughs) Because what happens is God then allows things to happen to you to wake you back up to reality. Right? So that's what was happening in Daniel 1. So in Daniel 1, they had made decisions right, to, to live outside of the will of God. But here's what I want you to see. So I'm gonna say it multiple times. So I want you to see it throughout this scripture. So in this, it's the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, coming in to destroy Judah, right? to destroy the Jews. Now here's what I want you to see throughout all of this. Historically, so we're gonna read historically, about Babylon, right? So it's historical, right? So King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. But you know where else Babylon is talked about? Prophetically, in Revelation, right? That the Babylonian kingdom, Satan's kingdom, right? On this earth, set up through the Babylonian empire for prophetically what we see in Revelations for the downfall of mankind as people go into or live into or live the way that the Babylonian empire trained them to live. So there's historically and prophetic. And here's what I'm gonna challenge you with. So we're gonna look at an historic event that happened, but I wanna challenge you with this, that the Babylonian prophetic empire is being set up right now in front of your eyes that what you're seeing in Revelations or what you see in Revelations, the setup of this kingdom luring people over to this Babylonian kingdom is the same plan that happened then is the same plan that's happening today, right? And the whole idea is, is that we know inside of Scripture, this is what they're trying to say, as much as we want you to live different, meaning on fire for Jesus, is they want you to live different in molding into or fitting into the world, right, in the Babylonian kingdom. All right, so let me read it. So this is Daniel 1, starting in verse 1. So I'm going to read all the way through it, so bear with me, uh, and then we'll talk about it from there. So it's in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple as his God in Babylonia and put the treasures in the house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring to the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to be to enter into the king's service. Among them who were chosen were some of the from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave gave them new names to Daniel, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. 
But Daniel, verse 8, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord and King, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have uh, their head because of, of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat or water to drink. Then compare our appearance to that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance to what you see. So he agreed and and they were tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and even better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard uh, took away the choice food and wine, where they, the choice food and wine uh, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To those four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time, he said, by the king to bring them into service. The chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found no equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. So they entered the king's service and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all of the magicians and chanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay. Lots of scripture, so I'm gonna break it down for you. Ready? So here's what I want you to see. Historically, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, had a plan, right? His plan was to eliminate the Jewish people, right? And he had a plan on how he was going to do that. So instead of the idea of, oh, I'll go in and I'll kill them all, you know the way that he decided to, to win over the Jewish people? Not to kill them all, to convert them all. Right, His idea was, if you could bring them in and you could convert them, right? I don't have to kill them. In fact, if I can convert them, they just become a part of my team. Like a great asset, right? Like just bring them over here, put them into service, just put them into service for a different reason than the one true and only God, right? Serve the Babylonian king, right? So he had a plan and he was very specific with his plan. And the plan that King Nebuchadnezzar uses is still the plan that I think Satan is using in our world today, okay? You've heard us say this before, okay? We've said this a thousand times. Change a generation and you will change what? The world. If you focus on a generation of young people and get them on fire for Jesus Christ and transform them into warriors, the world's gonna change, Guess what King Nebuchadnezzar knew? But if I get to a generation of young people and I sway them and I move them and I push them over to this side, guess what? That generation's also gonna change the world just for the wrong team. You see, the thing that I think that we forget is we forget that Satan has had a plan, does have a plan, and is executing his plan very efficiently today. You know what his plan is? Get your children. 
I want you to hear this because this is the problem today. You see, if you look, there's a gen generations of young people missing from the church. Where are the young high school kids on fire for Jesus Christ, ready to change the world? Because they were there in children's ministry. Hundreds of them. Right? On fire, ready to go. And then somehow by the time they got to high school, where is that? Where are all of them? What happened to everybody? And we want to look at that generation and we want to say, you guys are terrible. What happened to all you guys? Why are you at church? What are you doing? You know why they're missing? Because we were missing. I know you don't want to hear this. I'm speaking from the old man's perspective. You see, I grew up in a generation where, like, you didn't have a choice whether you went to church. You know what I mean? They bribed you with McDonald's afterwards, but I mean, I loved McDonald's, so it's perfect. If I could sit through an hour watching my dad fall asleep every Sunday and get to go to McDonald's. But you didn't have a choice. Anybody? You didn't have a choice. You're going to church. You don't get the option. You're gonna live in my home. You're going to church. And then my generation be like, I just gotta be better to my kids. I don't wanna force them to go to church because that's the reason they don't go to church today. Bull crap. That ain't the reason they're not going to church. They're not going to church because we have not given them an example of a Christ-like figure that says, this is what it means. And you're gonna come whether you like it or not. You make them go to school for crying out loud. Right? Like we make them do everything else, but when it comes to their eternity that could affect them forever, you give them a choice. What are we doing? What are we doing? The enemy is stealing your children and we're standing by saying, it's your option, it's okay, I'm not gonna guard you, protect you, or give you every chance possible to fight back. Can you see the disconnect? Can you see what's missing? We gotta do something. I don't know what all the answer is, I don't know what it is, but we can't let Satan steal our young people, why we idly stand by and let the spirit of Babylon and, and go into our kids and not only change the world, lead more of their friends to the same place. We can't do it. But he had a plan, right? His plan was to get a generation, but he wasn't just like, oh, I'm just gonna get a generation of young people. He had a plan of what he was gonna do with the generation of young people. You know what he's gonna do, the generation of young people? So if you read in scripture, it says, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his uh, court officials, to bring them into the king's service, some of the Israelites from the royal family and their nobility. So if you read into this, historically, Ashpenaz was the chief eunuch, okay? If you don't know what a eunuch is, it's somebody who has been castrated, their balls have been chopped off, right? That's what happened, right? 
So these guys, the eunuchs, right? So there's this, this idea, Daniel and all of his friends were brought in, and at this time, history would point both ways, but a lot of theologians would believe that the people, the men of Judah brought into this place were and had been subject to become eunuchs. They were castrated, right? And you know why? I want you to think about this. Spirit of Babylon, you know why God gave us the ability to be able to have children? You know why you have kids today? To raise up an army of believers that will absolutely change the world. That's why you have kids. Like you think the greatest thing we could ever give our children is that they'll win state championships or they'll win trophies or they'll win, they'll get good grades or they'll do these things. No, your greatest success is the, the, the arrow in your quiver is your children, that you raise them up to be a part of an army that's gonna transform the entire world. What better way to eliminate godly men from ever making that happen, start eliminating the men? And so it's not only when it comes to children. You know how I feel about this. So some of you are gonna be upset, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Listen, the way to crush a generation is to eliminate the men. Eliminate men. Very clearly, the Babylonian Empire knew the same thing that God knows. Sin entered the world because of the apathy of a man. Standing there, should have done something. Let his wife eat from the apple. While he stood alongside, said nothing, did nothing, wasn't there, wasn't participating, wasn't doing. Sin still prevails in this world because of the apathy of men. Sin's, like, you know what the... The craziest thing for me when I first gave my life to Christ, the, the weirdest thing that I ever saw, I gave my life to Jesus and I'm super excited and I'm reading about all of these warriors in Christ and all these men that were great warriors for Christ and all these guys that were standing in the gaps and all these guys that were great patriarchs and then I go to church and I'm like, where are all the men? Where are all the guys? Why is mom bringing them to church? Is it mom's job to bring them to church? Men. Is it mom's job to teach them the Bible? No. Is it mom's job to be the spiritual leader in the home? No. But you know what's crazy? Hey, young ladies, you ready for a second? You know how hard it is to find a man that will spiritually lead you today? I had some girls sitting in the front row in the first service and they're like, they ain't out there. Why not? Guys, why not? Why not? I hear this all the time. Well, you know, they didn't grow up with a dad and they didn't have a dad and they didn't get a chance and they didn't do and nobody challenges them to do. And you know, boys will be boys. And I'm like, all the way to hell, you're right. Why are we making excuses for our young men? Why aren't we calling them up and challenging them to be the leaders that they're supposed to be? I say it all the time. Young girls, listen to me. Are you ready? If you can find a godly man, ugly or not, snacky, 
Get him. You can make him pretty. (laughs) Don't let that one go. I'm telling you, don't let that one go. There are very few of them out there. Bring him in, cut his hair, dye him up, do something else. But you gotta find, when you find that godly man, get a hold of him because they're few and far between. Men, coaches, teachers, whatever you are right now, standing in the gap, whatever you are, it is your responsibility to stand in the gap and raise up a generation of young men that will change the world. There are no excuses. None. It's our job. You good? Right? Because this is what Babylon wants to do. They're like, if we can just keep the young people distracted, if we can just keep the young people, because think about this. You ever think about this? Like, what happens today, if, if you, you process this, if what we is allowed today, so I'm gonna speak from an old man's perspective, what you see on TV, you know, what you hear in the workplace, like if you see like where we're at, like this is what we would always say. 10 years ago, anybody? 15 years ago, you would never, right? You would never see that on TV. You would never see it that kids have a choice to go to church or not. You would never see it that they would be reading. You would never see it that kids would be on their phones and never come out and be, you know, hermits all the time. You would never see it. Will you see it today? How did it get there? How did it get there? One small decision at a time. That's how it got there. And you know who made that decision? Not your children, you. Right? Like, well, it's different and we'll change and it's different and we'll let. Like, we gotta understand if we're gonna change this generation, we've gotta be able to stand up for these things. Here's the other thing. They taught them to think differently, okay? So he taught them to think differently because here's what, Babylonia, this is what Satan knows. Change the mind drives the actions, right? The way that you think, right? The way that you think, the way that you process will dictate the things that you do in your life, right? Listen to what he says. Says he was, uh, uh, back to Daniel form, he was to teach them language, literature of the Babylonians, And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were enter into the king's service. So you know what they were gonna do? They were gonna start, for lack of a better term, you brainwash them, right? You just change everything that they're learning, right? Take away everything that they've been taught as a Jew, teach them what it's like to be a Babylonian, teach them what it's like to be accepted into the world, teach them what it's like to be able to live in a world of inclusivity, you know, to be able to include everything, teach them all of these things, and then pretty soon they're good Babylonians. That sound familiar? You know what your kids are being taught today? Right? Yeah? Be tolerant, be inclusive, accept all, do all, because that's really love, right? What's love is, is that you're being taught something that, that isn't what Scripture says. It's not what Scripture talks about. What we're being taught, whether that's in your school system, whether that's through your phone, whether that's through people teaching you outside of that, what they're teaching you is trying to brainwash you into, like, what's acceptable. In fact, listen, if you don't think that this is real, think about this for a second. You know what, the other thing, they, it wasn't just education. They were teaching them a mindset 
right? Teaching them a way, because one of Satan's greatest tools, you know what one of Satan's greatest tools is? To teach you to be comfortable, right? And not only to be comfortable, to be entitled, right? Now listen to me. So you know what the Babylonian culture was teaching them? That you should be entitled to the king's table. You should be entitled to all the food that he has. You should be entitled to get everything that the king has. You should be, because what he wanted to teach them, because that's not what God was teaching them. God wasn't teaching them a sense of entitlement. God was teaching them, trust me, trust me, trust me. You know what the king was saying? You're entitled and trust me. Now tell me, do we live in an entitled world today? I think about this, and I think some people were mad in the first service, but I might as well make people mad in the second service. <laughs> like, it was funny when we were remodeling our house, you know, and how you can't ever get anybody to come and work. Anybody ever have that feeling? Right, you try to get something done, you can't ever find anybody, and then they said they're gonna show up, and then they never show up for a week later, and you're wondering if the stupid thing's ever gonna get done. You feel my pain. So anyways, we get this guy come, and he shows up in the house, and he's a plumber, and, and again, the, he's like, hey, you know, sorry, you know, we kind of instituted this new thing and it was, you know, we instituted it, a, you know, a couple months ago because it's the only way we can hire anybody. You know what the new thing that they instituted was? Four-day work weeks, right? Like you only need to work four days now. And in fact, you don't even need to put in 40 hours. You just need to get here for four days and we'll give you a bonus for clocking in. Right? If you just clock in on time, you're gonna get money, you're gonna show, as long as we can get you here, Right? You know how we got to that place? That didn't happen overnight. We got to that place because somehow there's this sense of entitlement that we should have and we should get and we don't have to work for it. Right? Because the thing that, that, that the Babylonian culture is teaching you is that the best thing and the best thing you could ever strive for is to have everything you want and be comfortable. And when you're not comfortable, you should protest until you are. Right? That's the idea, is they want to train the way you think. The other thing is they want to change your identity. Verse six, it says, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, uh, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. See, the, they knew this. You know what the greatest fight back then was is that most of the people that had names were connected to biblical names that meant something in their life. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, all of that, they meant something like, I am, because of this name, identified with God, and with this name, I'm going to do something for God. So the first thing that the Babylonian Empire did is go in and say, we're just gonna change your identity. So we're gonna give you names that are no longer to identify you as God's people, but we're gonna identify you as Babylonian people. Why? Because here's what he knew. Back then, is the same thing that we know today. You know what some of the, the, the greatest crises in our young people that we have today? Identity. Where are you finding it? Where are you getting it? And where is it coming from? And we have an onslaught of people telling you what your identity is and telling you who you are and telling you what you should be. And we're struggling because you know what our identity is? As a Christian living differently, you are a daughter of the king. You are a son of the king. That's where your identity is and you have to keep that because the onslaught in our world today is to take your identity away. That's the onslaught, right? Now, we're gonna end with this. Here's three things that Daniel did, okay? Are you ready? So in that, we see the, do you see the plan? Have I lost you? 
right? The plan of what the Babylonian Empire is doing and what's trying to happen in our world today. This is what's going on. So how do we fight against it, right? So how should you, what could you do tomorrow to be able to fight against it? Here's the first thing that you can do, like Daniel. You need to be decided before the moment comes to, to question what you're going to do. So be decided, right? So when Daniel and his friends showed up there, they were making decisions every single day before they ever showed up in the Babylonian Empire so that when they stood in front of the king, they said, nope, I want to be different. They didn't all of a sudden say, oh, I want to live differently, but weren't making decisions to do that. So you have to decide in your life, what are you doing today from a spiritual formation standpoint? Every single day, you're going to decide to pray and fast. You're going to decide to read your Bible. You're gonna to decide to be in a small group. You're gonna to decide to reach out to people. You're gonna to decide to meet, would you see what I'm saying? Like you're gonna make a decision that every single day you're going to do these things because at some point, at some point, you're gonna be faced with a decision. Maybe small, but you're gonna face with a decision to move into the Babylonian empire or move away from the Babylonian empire. And you know how you get prepared? Today showing up to church, reading your Bible, praying. And you could say, you know what? But I've read my whole Bible or I've done all of these devotions. It doesn't matter. Be decided, do the things, be prepared. That's what he did so that he could be ready and he could be prepared for that. Here's the second thing, be tested. Right? You know that he says in scripture, it's like, test me. Like I know you said that if I eat this, I'll be better and I'll get in trouble, but you know what he said? Test me, give me 10 days. Let me eat fruits and vegetables. Let me not eat from the king table. Let me be tested. Because here's the thing that we know, that you know this. Very few people love tests. True? Like how many people love to go to school and be like, I cannot wait. No, no some of you are going to be out there, oh, I love it. Like every time. Very few people like to go to, and take a test. True? Nobody likes tests, but everybody loves tested things. Make sense? Everybody's like, oh, a test. I don't want to go for a test. But you love that when you're flying that that guy has a pilot's license. <laughs> True? Right? Like, you hate tests, but you're thankful somebody that put your car together knew what they were doing so that when you drive it down the road, things aren't going to fall. You're glad that it was tested. The question is for you as a Christian person, are you running away from tests? Are you allowing God to mature you through the testing? You see, I think we run away. Isn't that kind of natural, right? The tests come, get me out of the test, get me away from the test, I don't really want to. In fact, you're not even gonna put yourself in a position to be tested. See, I don't think it's always like when something bad happens to you, you're tested. What are you doing today? to put yourself in a position to test your faith. There's lots of things you can do. There's spiritual disciplines. Fasting, like that's one, right? Like you could fast, that's a test of faith, anybody? But that's a test, right? Those are things that are gonna see where you're at, you know, with your things. Be your money, right? Like you could be somebody be like, you know what, I've never given, or even though I do give, maybe God's asked me to give more. How easy is it in the economy we have today to give away more money? Or give away any money, right? But why not get to the place where you test yourself, 
right? Allow God, because I believe this, what scripture says is what comes on, uh, on the other side of, right? Well, what comes out on the other side of testing is a mature believer, right? That you're gonna be thankful for, that you're gonna be prepared for, that actually have been through the test and know what they're doing, okay? So put yourself being tested. Here's the last one. So the worship team, you guys can make your way back up. Here's the last one. Be different. Now here's, the, here's the crazy thing. So when I was a youth leader, this was the, the funny thing about doing youth trips. So we used to take kids on youth events all of the time, right? And so here's, here's what would happen, right? So you go on a youth event, and some of you might be able to attest to this because you've been on one. So you go to this youth event, and like ours were acquire the fire, or we'd go on these ski trips, and you just have these mountaintop spiritual stuff, right? Like you get there and you're hearing from God and it's as clear as it's ever been and you're super excited and you're on fire. It might just be a message, it might be something, but you are like, I am so on fire for Christ. I wanna, I wanna do something. I wanna make a difference. Anybody, right? Like you just got excited for Christ. I'm gonna make a difference. And then you get back from the trip because you're all huddled around in your group, in your small group, and all of your high school friends were like, we're gonna go back to our school and we're gonna change things and we're gonna make a difference and we're gonna sacrifice and we're gonna go down these roads and everything's gonna be different. And then Monday came. And they're like, wait a second, that means I have to sacrifice something. That means I have to do something. That means something has to change. And guess what happens? You wanna make a difference, but you don't wanna live differently. See, this is our problem. You can from the mountaintop say, I wanna make a difference, but until you choose to wake up every single day and live differently, it's all words. It's all words. The way we make a difference is we wake up every single day and we do the things that God has called us to do and we live differently because that's what God has called us to do. If you are a Christian person in this room, the thing that I wanted you to see and the thing that I hope that you will see as a Christian, we are called to live differently. As a Christian, we, it's a mandate on our life. And my hope is that we can walk away because we get to take communion together. Isn't that cool? So we get to take communion together as a church. And so, you know, one of the greatest things about communion is, is that it gives you an opportunity to reflect. That's what we're supposed to do. All right, so before you take communion, um, we're supposed to reflect upon a couple parts of our life. Here's the first part that we're supposed to reflect upon. We're supposed to reflect upon this. Jesus Christ shed his blood and broke his body for you. Even when you would have spit in his face and maybe have been spitting in his face for many years. Like, you know the greatest expression of God's love? Think about this. You ever have some anxiety over like your children, like if your children are hurt or somebody's hurting your children or things that are happening? You know what the greatest expression of love of God was? That he would sacrifice his son to you even when you hated him. What God expresses his love to people when they would spit back in his face? You know why we should live different? Forget that whole message. You know why you should live differently? 
because a God loved you enough to send his son to die for you when you hated him. You can forget everything that we just said. If you just focus on that, things should change. And this idea, right? This is the last thing we need to think about. He did not shed his blood and break his body so you could just escape through the flames. He gave his life so you could give your life. He gave his life so you could experience life and life to the fullest. Don't waste your chance. Don't give it up. Live different. Allow God to do amazing things. So I'm gonna pray for you and then we'll have an opportunity to uh, reflect and then we'll be able to take communion together and then sing this last song uh, together as a church. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, I pray for the conviction of our heart and our soul today, Lord, to just, where we're not living differently, where we need to make better choices, the things that need to be different, Lord. We don't wanna live in this fantasy world that we just got fire insurance, Lord. We wanna live different on fire for you, Lord. We pray against the enemy who's trying to steal our kids. Lord, I pray for an army of men, an army of young people, an army of God's people that are gonna stand up against the, the Satan and his enemy and his plans and make decisions to live differently. Lord, I just pray that as we take communion together that we never forget the sacrifice that you made. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.